offices are really used only about 60% of the time. So 40% at any one time remains empty. So for a bank, that could equate to around about $100 million spent on empty office space every year. So that's a, it's a huge number, right? That's Alex Birch, one of the co-founders of XY Sense, and this is Wildhearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders who are going to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. So for any company, obviously, office space is one of the biggest costs. In fact, it's the second or third biggest cost. In Sydney, A-grade office space now averages over $1,000 per square meter. Despite this huge cost, last year pre-COVID, over 40% of office space was empty worldwide. This has obviously increased in a massive way since COVID, and it's changed the way we value office space. Well, how can companies avoid draining billions of dollars worldwide into underutilized office space? What data can we use to make intelligent workplace decisions? In this episode, I'll chat to Luke and Alex, founders of XYSense, a team using smart sensors and AI-powered analytics to create workplaces people love and allowing companies to access and act on workplace data in real time. We'll be interviewing Alex, the CEO and co-founder of XYSense, a software engineer at heart who knows how to utilize every single corner of your office. We'll discover how XYSense isn't just a cost-cutting machine, it's about how you can build your office space to influence employee behavior. I'll then chat with Luke, the CTO and co-founder, about how they're using machine learning and AI to help answer these problems, how privacy will be secured with XYSense, and how to stumble your way into revealing the underlying innovation that is the bedrock of their IP. Finally, Blackbird partner Nick Crocker tells us why this problem is so misunderstood and how XYSense has stepped up in the face of the world shutting down during COVID-19. All right, well, let's jump into the episode with Alex, the co-founder and CEO of XYSense. You've been working on the problem of workspace utilization for more than a decade. Now, can you talk about the founding insight of XYSense? What was it? Well, XYSense is actually my second company that I co-founded. And uh, the first company I co-founded was actually in back in 2008 in Australia, a company called CeraView, which is in a very similar space to XYSense, but uh, a complementary company. So CeraView focused on uh, workplace management software. So think of large enterprises who've got a lot of office space and it helps them manage where teams are, where people are, relocations, et cetera. So that grew organically from 2008 through to now. And around about 2014, 2015, we took on some funding and we went across to the States and grew our business there. And we were actually had some quite some success with some large names in, in the enterprise world. So what that really enabled me to do was to have a deep understanding of what the large enterprise who has a lot of office space, what their big problems are to do with their workplace. So around about 2016, we came to this realization that these organizations spend so much money on their space and it's very challenging for them to understand exactly how well they're being used. So they call it office utilization. It was one of their biggest problems to understand it. And CeraView itself didn't have a solution which was a sensor base to help understand how well offices are being used. Instead, they relied on various third-party vendors to feed that data in. And we could just see at the coalface that those solutions weren't really delivering what our customer base really wanted. There was all sorts of different reasons behind that. 
but we felt that there was this real unique opportunity to build what we saw to be the holy grail for utilization. And employee number eight from Cereview, who helped build a lot of the Cereview platform, that's Luke Murray, and myself stepped away and co-founded XY Sense to try and solve that problem. So can you unpack a layer deeper why it's such a big problem? When I, when I think about workspace um, or office space utilization, um, it seems as though it's rather misunderstood, uh, but perhaps you can shed some light on, on why that isn't quite the case. Sure. We've got all these different variables playing together. So if you think, if you think about a large enterprise, let's think about, say, a typical bank size in Australia, they, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on their real estate every year. And globally, studies show that offices are really used only about 60% of the time. So 40% at any one time remains empty. So for a bank, that could equate to around about $100 million spent on empty office space every year. So that's a, it's a huge number, right? It's, it's not like they don't know it. They, they do know that their space is underutilized. They don't know by how much and they don't know exactly where. And it's very challenging to have, have a plan to improve on it. Because at the same time as these offices not being used to that extent, you've also got organizations that are either contracting or growing. So you're trying to take on new space, you're moving to new buildings, that sort of thing, as well as you need your workplace to really extend your brand. So you want a workplace to be uh, an effective place for people to work in as opposed to just a cost. So if you think of it just, oh, we need to optimize $100 million out of it, you're actually compromising on experience for the people in the workplace. So you've got these, these, all these different levers at play that contribute towards this problem. And I want to break that down a little further and what it means to really utilize a workplace. But I was chatting to Nick before this and he mentioned that it was one of the quickest rounds he's ever closed. What was the experience like for you? Yeah, so it was, it was definitely fast for us too, which was great. Um, we really have a great relationship with Blackbird and I can't speak highly enough of them. So there's a little plug. Oh, thank but you. At the same, at the same <laughs> time, uh, I think in part it was because this wasn't our first rodeo, right? We, we had seen and grown a company to quite a lot. I'm mean, like Sarah, you at the time I left was about a hundred people. Uh, I was looking after the Australian office with 60 people and we were, we were doing uh, quite well in recurring revenue. So uh, we, we, it wasn't our first rodeo. And because this new company XY sense was in a very similar domain as the previous one, we were really entrenched in the problem and we really understood it deeply. So that gave us a lot of credibility, both that we knew how to grow a company and also that we really had deep empathy for the problem and the customers and that, that we were solving. With fundraising, typically what you'd see is you need traction. And we were actually pretty product when we raised because we, we needed to, when you're building hardware, you actually need funds to, to help you build the hardware. So Luke and I spent 10 months building a prototype, uh, it, it bootstrapped it together. And at that stage, we decided, hey, can we, need to, we need to take this forward. We've got something that is uh, good enough for us to raise money off. And yeah, Blackbird were very keen to talk to us. What exactly did you have to, to constitute we have what we need to in order to raise money? So what we needed was, like, I think, was the confidence that we could build what we thought we were going to build. So uh, it was literally a, a Raspberry Pi prototype that was running and it was able to detect and understand anonymously where people are in the space when we hang, when we hang it up on the ceiling. And uh, it was very rudimentary, but it gave us a roadmap to understand how to build uh, the, the final product. Did you do a demo with anyone? Uh, we actually did. We had the whole Blackbird team come down and do a demo. And fun, funnily enough, when, when we first did it, 
uh, it was very early days, don't forget. So uh, there was, I think, six to 10 people underneath the sensor. And yeah, it worked and it showed where people were. Uh, it, could, it definitely could have worked better, but it did enough, obviously, to warrant that we would get the funding. Now, when we have a real-time demo, uh, yeah, that's a big wow factor. It's definitely something that we pride ourselves in, in that we are truly and literally live real-time. So uh, having information about how well a property portfolio for a large enterprise is going is all very well if you're making recommendations on how to use it better. But you actually have to trust the data. And if you don't trust the data then what good is analytics? So for us to have trustworthy data, it literally has to be real time. And it's so real time that if you walk around the room, you'll see the heat map signature change in the floor plan. Wow. And multiple times we've had people drop the F-bomb accidentally and say, <laughs> is, is this real? And that, that was such a big thing for us to, to have that real time so that it can um, have that trust instilled with whoever's using it. But then that leads into all of our analytics, which shows everything from, I mean, we have a, a global IT firm with 350,000 people in offices. Uh, we're rolling out across the globe currently, but mostly across Australia right now. We have a 10,000 foot view of our analytics showing across the globe how well different buildings are going. And then you can drill all the way down to a country, down to a building, down to a floor, down to a desk and see that sort of that from a thousand foot view, 10,000 foot view down to right in the detail. And at, at the same time, we also draw insights from it. So like, I mean, a good example is everyone or anyone who's worked in a large enterprise office, meeting rooms is always a problem. It's hard to find a meeting room. It's hard to book them. You hear stories of uh, actually we have to book a meeting four weeks in advance. And that just, That's a joke. I just wonder about the productivity <laughs> and organization where you have to, how, how much that slows down decision-making if you have to wait four weeks to make a decision. Trying to get a meeting with the president. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there's a big element to that. But I mean, one anecdotal story is we found that uh, with a 16 person room, for example, uh, in the last six months, there was only seven times where there was more than 14 people there. And uh, there was 680 times there was only one person in there. So the, what that says is there's, there's more focus space needed. People need more phone booths, uh, you know, individual focus areas, those sorts of things. And even though there's a seldom use case for a large meeting room, all the meeting rooms were very often used. So potentially they don't need to be so big. The capacity was too large. But those are sorts of analytics insights we get. Can you talk about some of the lessons or, or insights you've seen with the data that you have, how, how should people be setting it up so that people love going to work? That's a really interesting one because for startups, especially at the start of their journey, uh, workplace is often overlooked as an area of importance. So not providing enough spaces for people to focus, to think, to, you know, and then typically you see workplaces uh, potentially get allocated more budget as you get around to the series A funding stage where then you can improve on the workplace. But there's certainly the mindset that workplaces need to be an extension of the brand and the strategy of an organization and the culture. Uh, and it needs to be considered that way. Otherwise it becomes a cost center and you're looking at optimizing it for the wrong reasons. So making sure that your people get the most out of uh, why is a workplace there in the first place anyway, it's actually there so people can collaborate and deliver on their and do their jobs. And if you think of it like that and then maximize its effectiveness and minimize all of the friction that workplaces can present, then that would be my advice. So even, even if you're on a shoestring budget, it's still important not to neglect the workplace 
and think about how it can impact your people. Because often it forms a big part of why people stay at a job and uh, their, their satisfaction. You mentioned with one of the demos that you benchmark how well a company is doing to show them where they can improve. Can you sort of break down what it means to be doing well? For sure. Uh, earlier I mentioned in terms of utilisation, it's the, it, just because the 40% of an organization's offices are empty doesn't mean that you should fill 40% of them because there is a sweet spot where an office becomes overutilised and there introduces a lot of friction in that space. So if you imagine you have a thousand seat office and you've got say 900 people in there, it actually becomes hard to find a seat. It becomes hard to collaborate with your colleagues. Uh, It's very difficult to book a meeting room. So it's very important to understand the experience of the individuals in that space, as well as how well it's being utilized. And the sweet spot in terms of percentage utilized is typically around the 70 to 75%. Sometimes we see 75 to 80%, but anytime you make an overcrowded office, it does compromise the experience for people. And what we do find is that with the data we capture, it actually varies significantly between organizations on their work style, on the, what they do. And that sweet spot is very different. How do you go about finding the sweet spot in these conversations? So we look for indicators in the data insights. So uh, a metric that we've been researching is actually how long it takes to walk from a locker to your desk. And, in Australia, especially, activity-based working is something that, especially pre-COVID, was at the forefront. Almost every organisation had activity-based working. What that means is instead of having a permanent desk assigned to you, you would go in the morning, go to your locker, take your things and then find a free seat in your neighbourhood. Hot desks. Yeah, hot desking is another way of saying it. So imagine if at 9.30 in the morning you go from your locker and walk to your desk and that path is not direct it's actually roundabout so you're walking around trying to find a seat and then it's full so then do you go up a floor or do you go down a floor and that's kind of lost productivity but even that as a metric how direct is the path that someone travels from their locker to their desk is something that we uh, are looking at as a metric of the effectiveness of the workplace and i don't want to sort of underplay this uh this has been a pretty huge year for XY Sense. Um, obviously, everyone else as well. You mentioned COVID. Um, can you sort of break down what it's been like post-COVID? Uh, what are the conversations been like? How are people thinking about the future of work? Help us as listeners figure out what that world looks like. Certainly, one thing that's worth pointing out at the start is utilisation of offices is very low at the moment. Yeah. So uh, globally, <laughs> that's, that's pretty common, right? There's no overcrowded offices right now. And there's, there's, it, interestingly, there's different countries that are at different stages of uh, COVID response. And like Australia, obviously, we're in the thick of it at the moment. But for a while there, it's subsided. And in the States, clearly, there's a lot of new cases happening. But there's all sorts of short-term solutions that uh, we're seeing in place, such as perspex, uh, guards, social distancing, lift protocol, so that people are not uh, coming in close proximity to each other. And that's in the during COVID period. So there's things like social distancing, which we can alarm when there's someone who's in too close to another person. We can send a text message or that, that sort of thing. But in terms of the workplace, these short-term changes... Uh, are only going to be there until hopefully fingers crossed there is a vaccine or we've hit herd immunity and we're now in a new situation where you see the world has been enabled in working from home people now know how to work from home more people know how to use video conferencing tools than ever before people have learned how to focus they've set up ergonomic workplaces at home 
potentially more for the privileged, but at the same time, um, we hear stories almost weekly that we thought we couldn't work from home and now we're more productive. And that has to change how people think about why they go to work. There's commute time. You don't have to commute. There's uh, a different reason that people will go to work. And no one really knows how things are going to change. But anecdotally, we're starting to hear stories about it. So we were talking the other day to an organisation that has offices in Australia, New Zealand, the States, et cetera. And in New Zealand, they've pretty much lifted all of the restrictions on COVID so that they described it as you could literally walk up to someone in the office and hug them. So it's, it's basically back to business as usual there. And even then, they're seeing a 15% reduction in how space is being used. And that's really interesting. And what they're keen on understanding is what are people doing in that space? Are they collaborating more? Do people go into work to not have focus time, but actually to you know, in, in, interact with their colleagues and collaborate? And you know, there's, there's often discussions about productivity of people benefits from things like chance encounters. So we add the water cooler. You, you, you run into someone and you talk about a problem that you're able to solve. You just can't do that on Zoom at home, right? So collaboration and measurement of it is something that's super important for the workplace of the future. It's, it's funny, New Zealand, the, the Kiwis are kind of the, the workspace utilization guinea pigs for the rest of the world. Do you think that meetings will change in, a, in an exceptionally different way when in person? I, I imagine um, as you kind of talk that people will need to go to the office, but primarily for that collaborative aspect. Do you think that the consequence of that means massive expense reductions? Or um, what do you think are some of the, the second or third order effects of that? It's, it's an interesting point. And I should point out that I'm hearing stories in Asia, for instance, where people cannot work from home because their internet connections are just too slow. So they can't even check their emails. So they have to go into the office to check their emails. So, you know, this is, if, if that's the case, then you'll be going into work in certain Asian countries to be able to do your work versus going in to collaborate. And I guess the key message is there's a lot that's unknown about what the future of work looks like. And for us measuring to understand before acting, it is very possible to, that we could see a dramatic reduction in the amount of office space needed globally. And there's a significant savings that could potentially happen there. That said, though, people need to have ergonomic workplaces at home. So some of those savings from large organisations need to be passed on. And you're already seeing that from large tech companies, et cetera. But there's still this, this point where we don't really know exactly how offices are going to be changed, but there is a lot of evidence pointing towards they'll be used less and differently than what they are now. Big, big question mark. How did you need to change the product during COVID, if at all? When we have this platform of a sensor that's live real time, and it's very, very accurate at positioning people anonymously, I should say, uh, in their space, then that gives us a platform to understand when people are breaching social distancing. Uh, so that was one thing. So adding in real-time alerts for social distancing that, that we put in. Another big thing that is pretty prevalent across Australia and the world is desk booking. So when you've got a limited amount of supply because people can't sit in close proximity anymore, then now they have, they're adopting desk booking systems where you can't come in, you can't swipe into the building unless you've got a desk booked. So us integrating into those desk booking systems to understand that if I've booked a desk, I've actually used that desk. So a sensor picks up that someone's actually sat down at that desk. And we're also looking at ways to indicate to the users that uh, they've booked the desk. Uh, so we actually have a, a labeling solution that goes at the desk that shows both a social distance warning 
as well as uh, who's the name of the person that's booked the desk, that sort of thing. So we've adjusted in, in that way. But th those are really small things around the edges. I mean, fundamentally, we have a sensor that can understand how well space is being used. And like we spoke about before, the big question is, how will the world change and will workplaces change? And it's really important to measure that. And we're, we're in a good position to be able to do that because that's fundamentally what our platform does. You're wicked how quickly you guys have moved. Can you talk about some of the core operating principles that help guide the team to be so bloody nimble? Uh, I guess the first one is transparency. So uh, Luke, my co-founder and I, we pride ourselves on our integrity. We want to be as honest as possible and transparent and we're as transparent as we can with the team and also with our customers and potential customers. So we, we don't like to, you know, extrapolate truths, those sorts of things. We like to tell it how it is. So when we say it's real time, it is real time. Uh, you know, we, we tell our, our staff, our people, how in terms of how much money we raise, what our runway is, those sorts of things, all, all the sorts of information that we don't see a reason for that to be kept secret. We think it's important that everyone understands because they're more built, bought into it. Uh, another good example, very early on, our first customer, we felt like we weren't going to be able to deliver to their expectations. So we decided to have a very frank conversation saying we need to pull out. We don't think that we're going to be able to deliver. They turned around and said, no, don't pull out. We really have faith in you. Uh, thank you for being so frank with us, but uh, we want to work with you. And they're still our customer and they're still expanding. So, you know, that sort of speaks to the volume of how much we, we value transparency. How did you, uh, how did that conversation go down? Uh, well, let's say it wasn't, it felt great to deliver it honestly, because you're being honest. It's, there's no, there's, it doesn't feel good to tell lies, right? So, or even stretch the truth. So t telling them that, that they came to our office and we said, sat them down and said, look, we, we don't think, we, we don't want to under deliver. We, we want to deliver the best we can, solution we can. And in your time frame, time frames that you require, we, we can't deliver to that. And they said, that's fine. We'll just extend our timeline. We really believe in you. So that, that felt really good to deliver, honestly, because, you know, it was true to our values. And we use that transparency uh, value all the time to help gauge how we should do decision making. Another one is engineering excellence. So Luke and myself are actually engineers by trade, software engineers. And we actually spent three years perfecting our solution before we were ready to trial it. In terms of our team, we've had uh, ex-Rolls-Royce nuclear submarine person work on, work on some of our stuff. We've got ex-Intel uh, working on machine learning at the edge. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got an awesome team and, uh, you know, they're really believing in the direction we're going. And uh, we, we really focus on engineering excellence. Uh, customer focus. We, we've got such a deep empathy for the customer problems and the problems they're facing. So we, we really want to solve those problems rather than, I mean, we could, have, we could have put our product out there after six months or three months and iterated on it, but it just, to our eyes, wasn't good enough. And we needed to deliver something that was going to really return value. So the point where we get to uh, we, the, that lean forward uh, F-bomb moment, you know, that sort of thing, that, that's really uh, what we aim to, to build and then we're ready to release it. And an another one is team first. So we prioritize our team with rewards and we're team delivered versus individual delivery. So sometimes, you know, if you've got an individual motivated incentive, then potentially you could focus on that rather than helping your team out. We're actually all about helping each other out, delivering together, working towards our common goal. There is there's such an interesting one around setting expectations and managing those. And sometimes as founders, uh, I mean, there's the pressure to stretch, to be ambitious. Um, there's the dichotomy of 
trying to really stretch and, and reach beyond where you think could be possible. And if you hit it, you, you have achieved something truly exceptional versus um, missing and then under delivering. How do you think about that contrast? Especially in a COVID world, there's, there'll be lots of uh, goals that have been set for founders globally where they're going to be difficult to achieve. I think for me, the, the key there is clarity for the team and a, a deep understanding of where everyone's working towards and having rather than uh, many, many goals or OKIs or KPIs for the team to work towards, like we, we like to keep it simple. And potentially this is from experience from previous, um, from Sarah View with a previous company that uh, early on, the mistakes that we, we made were not having a team that were laser focused. It's very easy to say to a customer, yes, we'll deliver that. And then to the next customer say, yes, we'll deliver that. And at the end of the day, if you don't have a clear focus and your team is not laser focused on delivery, then you get pushed and pulled in so many directions that you don't get to be able to deliver something that is truly exceptional. And like this is early on in CeraView, so don't get me wrong, CeraView uh, got, got their, their act together. <laughs> and this is a learning experience for the co-founders. And yeah. yeah, I mean, interesting, I contrast that with now with the support we get from the Blackbird network. Uh, back in the day with CeraView, we were on our own in a way. There was no ecosystem for startups and we made those mistakes and learned from them. Hardware is obviously hard because there are so many variables at play. What were some of the ones for you that you know you needed to get right and, and perhaps that can help? Yeah, to help with others. So coming from a world of software where you can push releases so quickly, you can patch software, you know, you talk about continuous delivery, continuous deployment, those sorts of things in the world of software. Uh, that gives you a mindset that you can iterate extremely quick, quickly with hardware. And whilst it is possible to iterate quickly with hardware, once you've got your board, like at our first, I think, 100, we, we had something that we ended up calling the Razvan patch because we had to have, uh, it got down to five minutes of soldering on each board because it was a patch that needed to be applied. But imagine if you're producing thousands of these things, that just becomes a complete bottleneck. Iterating and being very careful and making sure you have all of the testing procedures in place and going through those steps. Because the worst thing you want is a recall in once you've got your product out in the wild. So we're touch wood, lucky enough that we haven't had that happen to us yet. But you need to be very prudent and very pragmatic in your approach to make sure that doesn't happen. Reflecting back on the, on the last few years, is there anything you do differently? Like, did you get any of the prioritization wrong? It's, it's always easy in hindsight, right? That's, that's something that you always say. So from, for Luke and I, building hardware was a new experience. So in order to do that right, we needed to build a team who had more experience in that area than us. And the first step was we needed to get the right advisors in place. So uh, Mark Alexander, CEO, co-founder LifeX was, we actually, where we work, co-work with LifeX in the LifeX office. And that was a deliberate play because they're a hardware company and we needed to immerse ourselves in hardware to make sure that we understood and knew exactly what was um, the task at hand. So uh, yeah, we, Mark is an advisor to, to XYSense and really helped us build the team out and gave us a lot of amazing advice. So that was, that was a huge part of it. Damn, that's a really smart idea. <laughs> in a way, it was fortuitous because a f common friend of mine works at LifeX. So I was able to get in there in a way. But, you know, if you don't know something, you need to get the right advice from the right people. So we certainly did that. Um, the other thing is the technology we chose, we, we, didn't, we didn't build uh, an algorithm and then choose how to apply it. We said, here's the problem we need to solve. What's the best technology to do that? And it just so happened that the best technology to do that was deep learning, artificial intelligence, and do it at the edge. And by that, we mean 
um, our sensor actually does all of the processing on the sensor in a, in a little CPU on the sensor. And all of that stuff is cutting edge. And I mentioned we had ex-Intel um, machine learning engineers working on this. Uh, we were doing something that was literally world first and no one was really doing what we were doing uh, in, that, in that niche for a couple of years. And it's still, it's still in its infancy. So we were building something that we were forging a way for. And that was a real challenge. So with all that hindsight, we, we iterated and we made mistakes and, you know, repeated, et cetera. If, if we could do our time over again, you know, it, it would be much more beneficial now because we've, we've got all that knowledge of hindsight and we'll be able to get there in, in a quicker path. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. No, I appreciate it. It's good fun. Now it's time to chat with Luke, the CTO and co-founder of XYSense. What sets the sensor that you guys have built apart from its competitors? Yeah, I think it really stems from our deep industry knowledge. So Alex and I haven't been in the commercial real estate technology industry for over 10 years each, starting at CeraVe, which Alex co-founded many moons ago. And from that, we've seen the industry move from really, you know, making ad hoc decisions on hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate to really having that thirst for data. So they've started exploring students carrying around clipboards, doing utilization studies every quarter to can we use the smart lighting data? So PIR sensors to triangulating of Wi-Fi signals to track devices. And we've really seen where all of those technologies and solutions fall down with holes in the data, you know, it doesn't scale to a portfolio. So we really went out from the onset to solve a specific problem that we knew the market had. And the few things that really arise there is privacy and security. So from the get-go, we're talking about large financial institutions, um, large utility companies. They take privacy and security very seriously. So our sensor processes the whole scene, does all the smarts, runs neural networks on the actual sensor, on each sensor that's deployed on site. And the only thing that leaves the device, even if the device is in installation mode or configuration mode or just running uh, typically, the only thing that leaves the sensor is anonymous XY coordinates. And we don't know of another product on market that actually can claim that. The other big differentiator is real time. We've had a partner of ours say, yeah, a lot of other people claim real time, but you guys are actually real time. (laughs) We have data coming in every two seconds. So that data lets us show a real time view of utilization and really gains, really lets the customer build trust in the data because they've been burnt before by solutions that don't work. An example is we had this, uh, we have a large tech customer and they were moving some business units from fixed desk to flexible desk. And obviously they had a bit of pushback from the business unit heads and the property team is trying to communicate why the, you know, why the company wants to make this change and how it's not actually going to affect them day to day because we have six months of data showing how they use the space. Obviously still there's a bit of pushback, um, you know, can they trust the data? And we're actually invited to this meeting just to sort of help, you know, uh, everyone learn about XY Sense and, and how the sensors work. So the first thing we did was just pull up the real-time view, which any customer can pull up anytime. It's not you know, a special gimmick for demos. And suddenly everyone's sort of like, oh, taken aback and people started rolling their chairs back and seeing the the, um, dots move on the screen. You know, people walk to the corners. So there's a lot of uh, wow expressions. And suddenly the conversation changed to, okay, well, 
this is going to happen. We trust the data. We're, we're way more comfortable with this. So the business units were suddenly on board with the property team's plan. In fact, the, the global head of property for that tech firm, so the multinational one, actually said it's clear that you have a deep understanding of the industry and it shows in the solution. And I think he said he hasn't seen anything like it on the market. So I think that really shows our deep understanding of the industry and where it all stems from. And that comes through in the product. I remember Alex and I were going around to conferences. We were talking to professors at multiple universities across the world about the really sort of really cutting edge research they were doing about taking these large networks and optimizing them um, using techniques like quantization. So taking, you know, a computer represents, um, you know, a data and a number in 32 bits or 64 bits, taking that and representing it in a lower bit format so we can process it faster on a, a lower device as, as well as maintain that throughput. And then also some really novel ideas that we sort of sort out. We, we do a quantization technique where we take the parameters and reduce them to a lower amount. But we use, and without giving away the source, we, we do something that we haven't actually seen in the literature so it was quite a journey to look at something that seemed impossible and actually have this sensor running our algorithms on it. Do you, do you stumble across something like that? Or is there a process of revealing the underlying truth of something new? Great question. I think there's a combination of stumbling and a combination of just following a research methodology of have a hypothesis test it and then learn from it and then go from there um there was certainly where we went out uh, to network so as i said we went to conferences we spoke to uh, people at universities that was where we sort of i mean purposely stumbled into things we were going out to um you know reach out to them and talk to them to expand our network and learn from them which is you know us kind of stumbling into some new information and going oh that's interesting let's Let's follow that down, um, see what we learn from that and how we can apply it. In your area, has it been harder? I know that you're a software engineer by trade. What did you need to do to get up the hardware learning? Coming from software, um, having only messed around with things like Raspberry Pis and Arduinos, there was certainly a large learning curve there. And immediately we knew that not one of us, Alex or I, could do it alone. So we needed to bring in help. And that's when we purposely actually went out and sort out in Melbourne, like, is there anyone in the hardware industry that we know that can actually help us? So, you know, reaching through the network, um, I think Alex knew someone who happened to work at LifeX, uh, being the Wi-Fi um, light bulb company. And we ended up meeting with Mark Alexander, who was their CEO, he's still on the board there, one of the, um, I guess, one of the sort of founding team members. And yeah, really got him on board and he really helped us through some early stages of hiring the hardware team, figuring out exactly sort of how we wanted to uh, find a manufacturer and go through that process. So definitely leaning on your networks is, is really important. Alex mentioned something earlier around the importance of data and privacy. Having something real time can sort of raise the, the fear of something behaving like Big Brother. How did, you, how did you guys think about that when you build the product? Our background is in this industry. We've been in it for 10 years each plus. Um, we knew what the market wanted. We had seen the market change from, you know, making ad hoc decisions on $10 million, $100 million commercial real estate decisions to really having a thirst for data to make smarter decisions. 
So we saw them go through, you know, let's get uni students in to do a utilisation study once a quarter. To oh, Can we use our smart lighting information to get anything out of it? Um, can we, you know, do Wi-Fi triangulation? Um, so we saw that the industry move into wanting this data, but we also saw that security and privacy was massively important to them. We're talking about large financial institutions, large utility companies. So they take security and privacy seriously. So from day one, when we started XYSense, that was on top of our mind. So we knew we had to process everything at the edge. And the only thing that leaves our sensor, regardless of if the sensor's in you know, configuring mode, installing it, or it's just running live, the only thing that leaves our sensors is anonymous XY coordinates. And we actually don't know of another product on the market that does that can claim that. What do you mean by the edge? If we had the luxury of sending all the data we could from our sensors to the cloud and processing it into, the, you know, in an AWS service, our lives would probably be easier. So when we talk about the edge, all this processing happens on the sensor. So that's where a lot of our years of R&D has gone into to make this sensor be able to run these neural networks, process the data on the sensor and so it's looking at the scene, understanding where people are, and then just sending anonymous XY coordinates out of that and forgetting about everything else. So we never save anything about the scene except for these anonymous um, sightings. And so if I was to look at the data, you wouldn't be able to see my head walking around Blackbird's office. Absolutely not. Thank God. <laughs> so they're obviously, you guys are obviously building something super new. How did you handle the uncertainty of, of that process? Almost like on the days when you ran into unsolvable problems, how did you respond? It's a bit of a mindset of a founder, right? Um, it can be a crazy roller coaster. And part of being at the beginning of a startup when it's just a small team or even just the founders at the very beginning, that uncertainty can almost be a motivator because you're learning so much. You're doing something that no one's ever done before. It's kind of exciting and it can pump you up. So there's a little bit of that, but of course there's downs, there's highs. <laughs> Um, having a co-founder, I think really helps you get to lean on each other. Um, you know, if you're fortunate enough to early on build a small team as well, that, that really helps cause you can lean on each other. And I think really what probably got Alex and I through is when we'd hit a wall, like, well, what are we going to do? How do we get over this? You know, we had experience hitting walls before, um, at Sarahview and, and ideas of getting over them. But I think what really drove at least me was, over the next wall, over the next 50 walls, we knew the industry so well. We knew there was a market there and we knew it was waiting for us and we knew the problem we had to solve. So it kind of got me excited to like, that's okay, we can get over this wall, like we're nearly there. We sought out to really build the holy grail of a utilization sensor and along the path, we're you know, 90% there at like in terms of our original goals of what we wanted to do, a lot of the uncertainty came with, okay, we, we can we can build a small computer, but is it going to be low power enough that we can get it cheaply installed and daisy chain, you know, multiple sensors across uh, one one power outlet at that low power? Is it still going to be able to run our algorithms and run it in real time? There's there's sort of three big uncertainties that we had that we had to work through. Thanks so much, Luke. That was awesome. No problem. And finally, here's Nick, a Blackbird partner and board member at XY Sense. At Blackbird, we very much believe in the idea of love at first sight. Was this the case for XY Sense? Yeah, it was. And it was surprising that it was because 
space planning and workplace utilization were not things that I thought I would fall in love with as problems. <laughs> but it was a very quick and easy decision to leave the seed round uh, with XY Sense. And it was probably done and dusted in three, four or five days. Wow. In my recollection. That's a quick spot. We just had such a high level of conviction in the way that Alex and Luke understood the problem. There's a great post by Cron uh, Chris Dixon's blog called The Idea Maze, which talks about finding founders that have navigated the idea maze of a problem. So most founder pitches will be sort of, and, and often the, the reason the, the pitches fail is because they're just too high level and the founders haven't thought through every single corner of an idea. When we met Alex and Luke, the way they explained the problem of how to help large organizations understand how their space is being used and how they understood how facilities managers thought about this problem, how they thought about how space planners thought about this problem, how they thought about how IT and security thought about the problem, how they thought about installation, how they thought about the specifics of the device, how they thought about the way that the device works. Just their, their depth of, of understanding of the problem and their clarity on the solution was so vivid and it made it so easy that when we did the first, first round with the company that we would just go fund them to build a very clear solution to a very complex problem. Can you unpack in more detail what this problem actually is? Why is it? It seems almost misunderstood. Can you un unpack that a little? Yeah, it is misunderstood and I, I misunderstood it at the start. Understanding how your company needs all of the different spaces that it needs to be its best version is actually a really complex, interesting problem that spans everything from architecture to behavioral science to just pure hard you know, CFO budget cutting, budget worrying numbers. So it's a fascinating problem if you think about it. And most of the way that we understand this problem is that people walk around with clipboards at 11 a.m. and go, oh, the break room's empty and the boardroom's empty and oh, all the meeting rooms are empty. We probably need more meeting rooms. And it's just such an inefficient, inaccurate way to understand how your space is being used. And what XY promises is understanding down to the centimeter how every part of your office is being used and gives you real time, not, 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 not a report at the end of every month based on what someone wrote down on the clipboard, but real time right now, where is my space being used and, and where is the space free? And then over time, how do we reconstitute the space so that it's, it's, it's used most efficiently. And the craziest thing at the start that I learned about all this is that for most big companies, somewhere between 30 and 40% of their space is unused. So the way I used to think about it was, think about another really big cost, which is people in any business. That's what, imagine if 30 to 40% of your people just didn't turn up on most days. Like think about how much of a hair on fire that problem would be. But that, that's, that's what happens every day with, this, with the space that, that um, big organizations pay for. So um, it just felt grossly inefficient. Um, it felt like 
I did a lot of customer calls uh, and, and have really strong memories of the customer calls, um, calling at banks and uh, public listed tech startups and um, consulting firms and just really speaking to each of these people and understanding that they were mostly quote unquote space planners and just understanding their passion for their job and how much I felt like we could unlock them by giving them this new data set with the XY sensors. So a lot has changed this year. COVID is upon us. Um, there are so many varying perspectives out there on what's going to happen to the future of work. What's, what's your perspective and kind of break down how you think the market opportunity is either getting better or worse for XY sense. It's interesting. It's, it's ultimately the same. And I can say that because we haven't changed our goal for the end of the year. We haven't reforecast our goal because we still think we'll hit it. So there's been acceleration and there's been deceleration. So the deceleration in the business has been, well, all of my office is unused right now. So it's, it's no longer my highest priority to track utilization because I can tell you what utilization is. It's 0%. <laughs> However, the acceleration is coming from the fact that you really need to know um, if you're trying to maintain a socially distant workforce, you really need to know, are there clusters in your office where there are lots of people that are having to stand close together? Uh, you need to know right now, is there a desk free on level 12 that someone can go and use? Is there a, um, a small office free on level three and how recently was it cleaned? So the need for real-time data has gone, has become literally life and death for, for these companies. So, the deceleration hurt us a little bit and the acceleration made up for the deceleration so that I think we'll still end up exactly where we thought we would end up um, at the end of 2020. Um, what's been really awesome is how quickly the team has responded and built out uh, an adaptation of the, of the XY sense sensor that extends its, its capacity to be uh, COVID useful. So desks is, is one, making sure that spaces have been cleaned is another, and then having good data on who used what desk at what point in the case of an outbreak. And so the extensibility of the platform and some of the features that we eventually were going to build, suddenly we, we accelerated and, and built in a matter of weeks. Yeah, it's been bad and good for us. And the net of it is we'll do what we thought we would do anyway this year as a result. But it has definitely accelerated people's need to understand down to the centimeter how their space is being used. And when we're talking about people understanding, this is very much a heavy hand-to-hand -hand combat sales style business. Why are you and, and the team going against Blackbird's love for low-touch sales? Good question. So there's two reasons. The first is that sometimes you will accept a longer sales cycle if there's the opportunity for very large contract values. And so XYSense has the ability to be rolled out across entire portfolios of very large companies, you know, generating hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of contract value from single customers. So the, the offsetting the long sales cycle is the, is the incredibly large value that they, they bring customers. That's probably less important than the thing that really matters, which is there's a real originality in the way XY Sense thinks about making it easy 
for potential customers to trial the sensor, to get a real-time live data feed off a single sensor so that customers can see right there and then, you know, maybe themselves in a room and themselves moving around a room from one chair to another or one desk to another. There's some originality in the way that XY Sensors thought about how to make it easy for customers to say yes. So the mix of very large contract values with our belief that over time, that originality would result in much lower time um, to convert customers. It was obviously one of the things that we had to get comfortable with in the deal, because as you say, it's antithetical to Blackbird's thesis, but where we see that originality and we, we can get comfortable. And on the, on the idea of sales, Alex is obviously a veteran having sold a, a prior business, but he's also a, an extremely technical founder. Can you share any lessons um, from what you've seen in Alex's transformation from going um, from technical to the sales? It's been interesting because the sensor itself is really pushing the edge of what artificial intelligence is capable of. And so we spent two years as an R&D company where it was literally 10 engineers just, just solving technical problems for two years because we just, we didn't even have a product to sell to customers because it just, it wasn't doing what we wanted it to do. So it took us to two-ish, maybe even more than two years to develop. And then there was a board meeting last year that I remember pretty vividly where it just became really clear that suddenly we had our first we had a working device and we had our first customer we had live data streaming in and we just talked about how we are now going to transition from being an r&d company to a sales focused company the other thing about alex and luke is they are both engineers at heart i think they they both come to problems with an engineering and a product mindset you know we've had to build the muscle as a company over the last um, few months and we've made a couple of recent hires that I think are really going to accelerate us down that path. It's definitely a transition and definitely something that is kind of our number one focus right now is transitioning from an R&D company, which I think we did an amazing job of being. We solved, solved some incredibly tricky problems with a remarkable um, uh, amount of um, kind of force. You know, there were definitely times where I just thought, I don't know how we're going to solve some of these problems that we've bumped into. Um, but, you know, transitioning now to, to companies that do incredible demos and, um, and build sort of a, a movement around um, space planning and under, understanding the way people use space, that's, that's really the focus of the company right now. And um, it's, not, it's not always easy. What is still on my mind is um, you mentioned earlier that they added a, a new sensor so that they'd have a product that is relevant to the COVID world. Um, that sounds really, really hard. And it sounds like they've turned it over really, really quickly. Uh, how, do you know how they did that? QR codes, integrating QR codes. Um, so they didn't actually put a new sensor in the device. They just enabled QR codes to integrate back into the analytics platform. So effectively you can come to a desk use the QR code to make the desk yours. When you leave the desk, you can basically signal to the system that you've left the desk now. 
and that can signal that it's a desk that needs to be cleaned. And so it was just about inter integrating the sensor data with that sort of on the ground data. And then the other thing that they were able to do was to, whereas the sensor previously was just looking for how space was being utilized, they were able to basically identify when there were people standing or like people standing too close together and do do some reporting of people that were working in a non-socially distant way. Yeah, it, was, it was amazing to see how quickly they, they, they spun that up and turned it around. But again, that's what they're great at, product and engineering. And uh, so I was um, pleasantly surprised, but I probably shouldn't be at this point. Three years on now after making what was, I think, your second investment with Blackbird. It's It's been a pretty insane year. Um, but where do you kind of see XY Sense going from here? XY Sense has the capacity to be one of the most valuable companies in our portfolio because this is a problem that affects every single organization in the world. So the future to me, I can't tell you exactly what year this will be, but in the same way that it would be weird not to have Google Analytics or some similar service enabled on your website in 2020. In 2030, it will be very weird not to have some real-time data feed on how your space is being utilized, especially when we all pay so much for the space we use. So even in a post-COVID world where 50% of the workforce um, moves to work from home, you still have to have a, a system that tells you how your space is being used and you have to create um, an architect offices to to fit this new world and you can only do that with data um, the sort of the gut feel let's let's hope this works this is what i think this is what i feel is just not going to be enough in in that world so you know this sort of blindness that we exist in right now where we just don't know at how most commercial spaces are being used. Um, that will not last forever. And then my dream of dreams beyond all of that is, is that XY Sense sensors just become the default way that you track the utilization of any space. And so whether it's interior designers, architects, commercial office space, governments, uh, um, cities, we all want to know, we all exist in these spaces, whether our homes, our offices, um, shared spaces, cafes, restaurants. We, we want to know whether we got the, we, whether we built those spaces to be used properly. And if you think about the way we build them, it's, it's as if you think about the way a restaurant gets built or a house gets built. It's as if you get, if you think of it in the software context, it's as if you, you built the software once shipped it and never fixed it again and never got any data on how it was used. And I think we'll become, I think space will become more adaptive based on the data we see about how it's being used. And so that's my like very big, large dream of dreams for, for the, for the company. But there's a bit, there's a billion dollar business in just being the default um, sensor for tracking space utilization in the commercial workplace. And I think XY Sense right now has as good a shot as any company in the world to, to go after that. Here, here. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you, Mason. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email, wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you subscribe, and if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. And finally, and if you haven't already, make sure you check out Giants Weekly, a new online event series that's on Tuesday, 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, 
For 30 minutes, we interview the top tech leaders. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.